Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, it is nice to see you. It is nice to see you too, J.D. How are you on this um, balmy Thursday? I'm fine. Uh, thanks for asking. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I, uh, and I appreciate knowing that it is balmy there in the District of Columbia, or thereabouts. Always good to know. Uh, let's get to it, shall we? Sure. Okay. The reason I'd like to get right to it, Ed, is because we're recording this podcast, as we usually do, on Thursday afternoon, and not very long ago on Thursday, some news broke that puts um, back into the headlines a figure who, um, though sort of looming large over much of the news in the church in the U.S. over the last three years, um, has not sort of been immediately in the headlines on a day-to-day basis for a little while, and that is uh, the figure of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Uh, because, Ed, as I'm sure you saw, if you read The Pillar, um, or other news sources, I guess, but as I'm sure you saw, um, former Cardinal McCarrick, uh, who is now 91 years old, has been charged with three counts of indecent sexual assault of a person over the age of 14 in the state of Massachusetts. He's, he's essentially been criminally charged with indecent assault, um, and three counts of it in, in the state of Massachusetts. He was charged yesterday, the news broke today. And this is for all of the ways in which Cardinal, former Cardinal McCarrick has been in the news and all of the things which have been uh, revealed, uncovered, alleged, and um, reported about him. This is the first time that he is facing um, state criminal charges. He's faced canonical charges. We can talk about that in a minute. But this is the first time he's actually facing state criminal charges. And it's interesting because I think most of the time that we have been sort of hearing about McCarrick over the last three years in the life of the church, people have been sort of saying, why isn't he in prison? Why isn't he in prison? And there's an answer to that. Um, and uh, But this case sort of changes things, doesn't it? It, it really does. Um, the, uh, the prospect of McCarrick, even at the age of 91, actually stepping into a courtroom um, is one I I did not anticipate. I, I thought we'd effectively heard the last of him. Uh, and the prospect that he's going to be in a, in a Massachusetts civil court is, is very interesting. I, I think it's interesting in a number of ways. The first, uh, of course, is, you know, how did they, how did they manage to achieve this? Because of course, there's been no shortage of accusations about, against Cardinal McCarrick, uh, including of the sexual abuse of minors over the last few years, but none of them have come to trial. And the reason they have not come to trial primarily is that the statute of limitations has run. Um, you know, the, there have been various states that we've talked about, most notably the state of New Jersey, uh, have, have created sort of carve-outs um, in, in their statute of limitations for civil litigation that you can... In other words, for lawsuits against McCarrick or the diocese or someone who is perceived to be negligent or um, malicious in, in, with regard to sexual misconduct in some way. That's right. Um, but of course, this doesn't apply to, to criminal charges. But what, what's happened here is apparently because McCarrick was not a resident of the state of Massachusetts, the statute of limitations effectively paused when he left the state. Yeah, that's a really interesting... I had, I mean, we're not civil lawyers, so I didn't know, but that's a really interesting thing I didn't know about. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's probably coming as a surprise to a lot of people right now. And um, I, I wonder if this the same uh, sort of fact pattern of, you know, uh, crimes committed out of state by people who, who are later known to have been or alleged to have been sort of prolific abusers, uh, but haven't been able to be charged because of the statute of limitations. I wonder if, uh, if this is a new prosecutorial avenue that will be explored in other cases. I, I guess we'll wait and see. The other reason that this is particularly interesting is the, is the prospect of McCarrick himself being in court, facing these charges, facing, um, you know, a, a clear accusation by a person of a specific act in a specific place at a specific time, which we have not seen. We haven't heard a lot from McCarrick since the, the accusations broke in June of 2018. Um, we've had sort of the occasional blanket denial from him um, against all charges of, of any kind of sexual abuse or even mm-hmm. impropriety on his part from him. We've had um, when he was staying in a in a friary in Kansas uh, for a while, a, a reporter got in and got to see him. Um, and he offered a, a, a sort of strangely worded denial, which was, I don't recall any of that, and I don't believe I've done any of the things that I've been accused of. Now, of course, McCarrick is in his 90s now, so um, the possibility of real cognitive decline is uh, is a live one. Um, but it nevertheless... Although, uh, to be fair, the, the reporter actually kind of challenged him because he gave this very sort of weird, uh, you're right, response. I, I, don't, um, I don't believe I did anything that they're accusing me of. And she said... 
She asked him, she said, are you couching? This was a reporter for Slate back in 2019. And she asked him, are you couching that? Is that finessed or something like that? And he followed up to say, no, no, I, I deny the things. And then he rather explicitly denied the allegations which had already emerged about him abusing minors in this, within the sacrament of confession. And he sort of said, that, that's absolutely terrible and a horrible thing. And I would, I, you know, I would never do that. No pre- how could any priest conceive of that? But it, it, was, it was an interesting thing because it was almost a semantic pattern to give this uh, evasive denial, right? I sort of, I couldn't imagine da-da-da. And only when pressed would he get spe- specific, which I find kind of an, an interesting sort of habit or pattern, potentially an interesting habit or pattern of speaking. Yeah, and if you dig through the correspondence that came out in the McCarrick report that the Vatican issued, um, you see a lot of uh, these sort of uh, ways of speaking, ways of denying things that, that are very um, well-established by him throughout the years as different allegations came up against him uh, over the years, which they did internally within right. the church. Um, and the way he would bat them back was always a very, uh, they were always very strangely couched. And I, and I think um, they're, they're glimpses into a kind of psychology there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to try and unpack them. But I, I do get the sense that the, the, the way in which McCarrick has spoken and denied specifically these, these accusations against him over the years has uh, g- gives a flavor of the character of the man, a flavor of the mentality of the man, which I, mm-hmm. I think is very interesting and presumably we'll see more of um, if he presents himself in court. And the other reason that this will be particularly um, fascinating to watch unfold is because even though he's had a Vatican, um, not trial, he wasn't on trial in the back, there was no judicial process, there was a penal administrative process, yeah, which is yeah. a canonically abbreviated um, procedurally much abbreviated uh, way of dealing with criminal activity in canon law, which is really only to be deployed when the evidence is considered overwhelming um, and the matter is right. fairly clear. Mm-hmm. So we, we've not had McCarrick actually have a day in court anywhere, even in the right. Vatican. Um, right. You know, he would have been deposed and all these sorts of things as part of the administrative penal process, but it's not the same thing as being up in front of a judge. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it will be very interesting to see how this plays out. And I, you know, we're, um, I, I wonder how this is going to, to go, because, of course, we, we know only the sort of bare sketch of what he's accused of by um, this, this man who's, who's brought the accusations. He's, he's, um, he's not been named. Uh, and I, I wonder, because, you know, we are going to run up against, you know, well, in, in one sense, it's McCarrick. So everyone has a certain reaction to it, which is, well, you know, we know he's in the, we know he's a sexual predator. He's been convicted of that canonically. He's been laicized. He's been right. um, stripped of the rank of cardinal, all of these things. Uh, but at the same time, there are real difficulties in prosecuting uh, allegations of sexual abuse that go back, in this case, nearly 50 years. You know, this is right. the 1970s. You know, you, yeah. you're almost by definition, when a, when a sexual predator strikes, they're doing so in circumstances in which they maintain deniability, that you have to isolate the person that you look to abuse, you have to, you know, you have to give yourself deniability, you have to make sure that they understand and feel, as this young man apparently did at the time, that, you know, nothing, no one would believe you if you told um, what had happened to you, that, you know, you, you to place a, an immense amount of moral, and in this case, according to the allegations, spiritual pressure on the person not to say anything. Um, so it becomes, just as a legal matter, it becomes very, very difficult to reach, um, you know, a sort of standard of proof in a court. So I, I would assume that the prosecutors wouldn't be bringing these charges if they weren't confident they had a case to make. And perhaps uh, there's there's other testimony and evidence that will come out as we hear more about this. It could be, you know, that the the alleged victim here had, you know, spoken about it, if not, you know, at the exact moment of, of the assaults, but had spoken about it. You know, to different people at different times along the way, and that's just, this isn't something maybe that he's relating for the first time now, but has been talking about with family members or confidants or whatever for for some time, some years. I, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, and, and this is always for me the hardest part of trials to do with sexual abuse, because on the one hand, there's no demographic of victim that you instinctively have more sympathy for and want to do more for more desire to see justice for indeed exactly yeah. no one deserves justice more than a victim of child sexual abuse for right. sure 
Um, and at the same time, you come up against all of these real legal procedural evidentiary hurdles in trying to establish it. And that's the real dichotomy of bringing justice to victims, uh, not just in the church, but in, in all of these cases. So I, I will, you know, I, I'm waiting with, you know, considerable anticipation to see how this plays out in the Massachusetts court. I, I hope for the sake of justice and for the sake of victims that it will be, you know, well prosecuted and reasonably clear because the last thing I think any victim uh, even, you know, perhaps surviving victims of McCarrick would want to see is for McCarrick to get his day in court only to, you know, then walk out the door exonerated or a free man or, you know, judge not guilty or, you know, failing to meet um, the burden of proof. I, I think that would be heartbreaking for many people and open a lot of wounds and, and raise a lot of important questions about how we deal with situations like this in, in a judicial way that is both fair and guarantees justice, including justice, you know, the rights of due process for the accused, um, but at the same time does serve the interests of victims. So, I mean, th there's a lot here. Well, and we don't know, um, we don't know that there actually will be a trial for a few reasons, right? So first of all, um, McCarrick is a 91-year-old man. Um, we don't know that he will be judged competent to stand um, uh, for a trial. I mean, it's entirely possible that his attorneys may um, argue that uh, he, he's not fit to, to stand for a trial. It, it seems unlikely, and part of the reason for that is because his lawyer has said something like, well, we're looking forward to seeing this addressed in the courtroom or, or, or something like that, you know, indicating sort of an expectation, actually it, seeming to indicate it, at least sort of an expectation of exoneration. So it, it seems that his, his attorney's plan now, at least, is, you know, to, to, to actually defend McCarrick, um, but it, you know, it, on the merits and the su sort of substance of the case, rather than, um, rather than, uh, you know, on sort of his current current fitness for for trial or something like that. Um, but you know, we don't know, and so we don't know that there will be a trial for that reason. Um, we don't know that there will definitively be a trial because, of course, it's always possible that he could, uh, that McCarrick could arrange a, a plea agreement with the prosecutor before the thing would actually go to trial. Although that seems. Again, based upon um, what his uh, what his own attorney has said, that that seems somewhat unlikely. Um, then again, he he's ninety one, so um, if the sort of preliminaries of a trial were to drag on for a little while, you know, there's always just the prospect of a ninety one year old man being ninety one and not sort of making it through very very far in a trial. Um, but if there is a trial, um, the the substance of this allegation against McCarrick. Um, stands, I think, in the context of a trial to bring a lot of things potentially um, to light that people have had questions about over the last few years. And, and here's why. The substance of the allegation is this. A man alleges that when he was 16, uh, he went to his brother's wedding reception with his whole family uh, in 1974. The wedding reception was at Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. McCarrick, he says, was a close family friend. He says that he had gone on trips with me, you know, McCarrick had gone on family trips with him and those kinds of things, and that McCarrick had sexually assaulted him in the past. And then he alleges that McCarrick, um, insofar as I understand the substance of the allegation thus far, he alleges that McCarrick sexually assaulted him twice, once groping him as they were on a walk together around the campus. And then the second time, um, in the context of what sounds to be like sacramental confession, in, in other words, in the, in the context at least of a confession-esque experience, um, McCarrick is alleged to have um, to have fondled him uh, again sexually, and that pattern that this isn't sort of um, an allegation that McCarrick you know at, that McCarrick assaulted this victim sort of once singularly um, in Massachusetts, but rather that this was part of a sort of broad pattern of things makes it possible that the kinds of broad patterns that have been alleged against McCarrick before with regard to forming family relationships you see this in the McCarrick report you see this with the um, the first victim, the first victim to come forward with, McCar uh, with regard to McCarrick, James Grine, um, to, to identify himself personally. You see this, um, you know, in other patterns that have been described. This seems to be a sort of McCarrick, a consistent allegation against McCarrick that he would, in the context of these family relationships that he would form with families, sort of begin to serially groom and molest minors. And so the pattern that that describes may well come to light. And at the same time, um, because of um, because of the serial nature of it. Um, ongoing questions that, you know, um, that the McCarrick report purported to address, but I think many people, re you know, remain curious about with regard to like, was there knowledge of this, um, you know, potential knowledge of this among ecclesiastical officials? Was that ever brought to light? Did McCarrick ever take, this was during this period in the 19, early 1970s, McCarrick was the secretary to, to Cardinal Cook, the, the Cardinal Archbishop of New York. And um, I have heard 
people allege that when McCarrick was Cardinal Cook's secretary, he would take teenagers with him on on trips, on church trips, you know, business trips, as it were. Uh, it could come uh, to light that there was a, a pattern of that, which has been alleged but not wholly entirely substantiated. Um, so there is the potential for a great many things sort of connected to the set of issues with McCarrick the, that, that have been raised to, to come to light. The difficulty, as you say, is that these are things that, you know, now are 40 years old um, uh, or, or more if they're going to be talking about a pattern. Uh, right? 40 years old? 1970s, yeah. I mean, 1974, 40-something years old? Yeah. yeah. Um, 40-something years old and um, or more if they're going to be talking about a pattern. And um, if there are potential witnesses, um, you know, some of them may be dead um, already. Um, you know, some of them may not, not you know, want to make themselves available. And again, the issue of um, not having told anyone um, potentially in childhood makes this, as you say, a difficult thing to process. I think that's part of the reason why I think people have realized how important it is to be able to, like, let children know that if someone is treating them inappropriately that they should tell right away. I mean, to, to, to put an end to it, right? I mean, we, we have an awareness, we just have a, a much greater awareness of the fact that um, children can be the victims of this kind of thing serially over a period of years and uh, internalize it rather than saying anything and have a sense of shame about it or a sense that they're not supposed to. And so I, th I think that's part of the reason why there's now been um, a, an understanding of how important it is to sort of address that proactively and let children know that it's okay to tell you to tell mom and dad if someone's doing something they shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. But at that time, that was not sort of the prevailing ethos, which makes something like this all the more difficult to uh, to, to try, as, as as you said. Yeah, um, but I mean, again, this is this is part of what makes this particular story news. Is there's a lot of unanswered questions that you know were sort of floating in the ether after the publication of the McCarrick report by the Vatican. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, that was intended and more or less explicitly stated to be the sort of Vatican's last word on Theodore McCarrick. Uh, and so everyone kind of just thought, well, if nothing else is going to happen with him, he's been laicized, he's gone away, uh, he's not facing any further charges anywhere. You know, that's that's the end of the conversation. And now, you know, r regardless of how the sort of trial process plays out, it's clearly not the end of the conversation, although right. we can't foresee how that conversation is not going to continue. But I think we will see re-raised a lot of questions about who knew what about McCarrick within the church when um, the, the... Why things didn't come to the fore. Why yeah. things didn't come to the fore. Why people who, who complained or raised concerns or questions were pushed to one side. Um, the, you know, the means by which, you know, what we, what we saw illustrated, albeit I think somewhat grudgingly, um, and in some cases, almost without looking straight at it in the McCarrick Report, a culture of um, clerical and institutional self-preservation, which just basically said there are things we don't want to know about and things we don't want to hear about. And if you try to tell us about them, we're not going to listen. And, you know, I think those are things that the church has not fully reckoned with, despite the McCarrick Report, despite all the scandals of the last 20 years, really, um, and, and will now be raised again. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for a lot of Catholics in the pews to, to hear it again. I think it's going to be hard for a lot of victim survivors of, of sexual abuse, both clerical and otherwise. But I also think it's a conversation that, you know, we have to, we have to have, and in a sense, keep having uh, until we get to a conclusion that makes sense and offers some reasonable prospect of, of both reckoning and moving forward in a credible way. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but before we do, I just want to talk about kind of two questions that I think people have had that this, you know, may, one is unanswered, but one is now answered, namely kind of could McCarrick face more canonical charges and then where has McCarrick been all this time? Um, so the could McCarrick be, face more canonical charges, you, you mentioned that McCarrick was the subject of what's called an administrative penal process, and um, at the end of that penal process in 2019, the CDF announced that McCarrick had been laicized and said that he'd been found to have, um, I believe the way they, they talked about it was um, uh, found to have committed sins against the Sixth Commandment with, a com with a, adults and minors, with the compounding factor or, or the aggravating factor of abuse of power, and also the canonical crime of solicitation, so soliciting uh, someone for the purposes of sins against the Sixth Commandment in the context of the confessional. Uh, th that first one is not does not precisely describe sort of a canonical crime. The second one, solicitation, is very specifically, this is a canonical crime. The first one doesn't say specifically sort of what canonical crime are we talking about here, and you and I have discussed that before, but rather it describes a pattern of behavior which certainly can be described as criminal without saying precisely what charges were 
were filed there. And there were some technical reasons for that, I think, that, that, that we've talked about before, difficulty in sort of knowing precisely what aspects of the canon law that was enforced at the time that McCarrick was accused would apply and in what ways. Um, but w- we don't know um, the substance of the allegations for which McCarrick was actually um, uh, faced actual charges at the CDF. In other words, we don't know which allegations were sort of the triggering allegations for the charges. And therefore, we don't know if these allegations are um, allegations that the CDF has already heard and um, you know addressed in its own administrative penal process, or whether these are new um, allegations for McCarrick himself. Um, but, but in a certain way, it doesn't matter um, from a canonical perspective. Um, and the reason why I say that um, is that uh, the CDF is not going to have a new penal process for McCarrick if these are new allegations. He has been laicized, and there's not a further penalty that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith can impose upon McCarrick for the, these allegations. Um, and so, you know, it, it won't be as though he was tried for pre- other things previously, and now he's going to be tried or have a p- administrative penal process for these things, um, e- even if they weren't sort of folded into the first one, because there's not a penalty that they could impose for them. So that answers, I think, uh, the first question that some people have, have begun to ask. The second question is a very interesting one. Um, people have asked kind of, where has McCarrick been? Um, you, you know that McCarrick was uh, immediately sort of after the things unfolded in 2018, um, uh, things emerged in 2018, McCarrick moved into a friary in Kansas, a captain friary in Kansas, and there was some criticism of that, but that's um, the, the friary allowed him to stay there essentially as a boarder and, and to pay room, you know, rent for his room and board and these kinds of things. Um, and in 2020, the beginning of 2020, uh, um, we reported in a previous life that he had, uh, that McCarrick had left the friary, uh, had moved out of the friary, um, and, uh, and it was sort of, um, there was a lot of speculation about where he had gone. I, I must admit that for myself, it doesn't precisely strike me as, you know, where he had gone as news qua news, um, in this sense, McCarrick has had to live somewhere, you know what I mean? So there's a sort of lot of like, we've got to find him, we've got to find him. McCarrick had to live somewhere, right? I mean, everyone has to live somewhere. And, um, you know, it, it turns out that where he was living was, um, at, uh, at the Vianney Renewal Center in, in Dittmar, Missouri, which is um, an interesting choice because it's principally sort of a clerical or religious residence. It's a secure residence, essentially. It's, in some ways, some, some people often describe it as kind of the, 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 the place of last resort for a problem cleric or religious who is not going to be dismissed or laicized um, because it's, it's um, while, the, while it has a kind of treatment center, it also has a long-term residential center that is essentially secure and monitored for people who um, who really can't be, you know, say, who are not a judge to be able to live safely somewhere else, and and who choose to remain, uh, in, you know, a, a cleric or remain in their religious institute. Well, uh, sorry, just to pick up on that point because this is something that a lot of people ask when um, they they first encounter uh, places like this, and they say, well, why wouldn't these people be laicized? So first of all, the, the sort of people that a- end up in facilities like the one in Dittmar. Um, some of them, it's a, it's a substance abuse problem. It's not by any means all people who are um, who have uh, problems related to sexuality. In some cases, it's a it's a substance abuse problem. But the other thing is, um, in some cases, clerics are not laicized despite having been judged to be guilty of horrendous um, crimes. And a lot of times people will say, well, why is this? Why can't this happen? And, and there are a couple of reasons for this, but very often the reason that is given is if when the church laicizes a cleric, it loses a certain amount of jurisdiction over him. That when a cleric is reduced to the lay state, as we used to say in canon law, the church can no longer impose by authority on them where they can live, who they have to report to, what their pattern of life is. That they're you know they're laicized they're free to go where they want so in, in many cases the church doesn't laicize someone because it wants to retain the authority it has over a cleric and say you are going to live in this place you are not going to leave you are you know you are going to report to this person you are going to conform to this way of life so it's not always a question of the church doesn't laicize a cleric because it doesn't um think that that cleric is that bad or whatever it, it can just be a, a question of the church recognizes it has an ongoing responsibility to supervise that person and the way the church can maintain that supervisory control is to retain them in the clerical state. Now in McCarrick's case, it's interesting because of course he was laicized, but nevertheless has effectively been living in either religious or clerical houses. 
since his laicization, and he seems to have, um, you know, voluntarily, not even voluntarily agreed, but in at least as I, I think one reading of it is that he's he's asked permission of these places yeah, to right. take him. Um, I mean, you know, he was a lifelong judgment. You know, he was a monsignor in the 1970s. He was a bishop, an archbishop, and a cardinal. That he there is there is nowhere else. Uh, there is no other pattern of life he really knows or understands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what what else could the, you know? You said earlier, you know, everyone's got to live somewhere. You know, where else would Theodore McCarrick live? You know, in a in a motel? I I don't know. I I I, I don't know. But I think that's also part of what's behind his. Um, is having been in a facility like this is to basically go to the church authorities and say, where can I go? And, you know, I'll, at least as I've understood, he, you know, has been paying his own room and board. Certainly he was in Kansas. Um, and, and so this is an accommodation of the church to say, well, you can go here because that's where people like you go. Right. And and him agreeing on those terms. Right. Yeah, that's right. So um, again, though, that in a certain way, that residential decision of on his part, points to what I think is an entirely sort of possible outcome of these charges, which is that he might, the fact that he has sort of chosen to live institutionally in these ways. Now, you could say, well, he's sort of institutionalized, right? I mean, he's been a cleric this entire time, and it would be impossible for him to sort of imagine life beyond sort of the the institution um, and the halls of the institution, and, and that might be so. Um, but it's also possible that McCarrick has chosen these sorts of places because he's in, he's in need of care, right? That he's, you know, either his physical or or cognitive capacity is diminishing. Again, he's 91. And so that's also a possibility, which again, goes to the point that it may well be that he's not judged to be competent to stand trial. I, I would imagine that, that that would not be, again, I would not imagine that his lawyers would sort of be telegraphing, well, we'll settle this in court if that was their anticipation. But um, but it is a possibility. And, um, and, and it's, po- you know, one possible read of living in those places. Um, could you know could be having have, being in need of care in one way or another i i would expect he needs some level of care um, yeah sure the, you know he was he was quite elderly and frail before um the before the accusations against him were made public and, and that was in 2018 mm-hmm. you know he there, he had been moved to basically a religious retirement home um out of a house that where he was you know broadly speaking living on his own with some staff uh, but he was moved into basically a care home uh, because he was judged to not, you know, be able to look after himself anymore, and he needed that. So I'm, I'm sure there's at least some measure of that. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, now, so the the sort of I think the day that that he will be arraigned, I suppose, is is the 26th of August. So this is not going to, you know, we're not going to see the next steps of this immediately. Although often in these kinds of things, um, there's a, a lot that kind of emerges between uh, between then and now so we'll just keep following that but we'll definitively know something I think on on the 26th of August um, in the meantime um, uh, kind of stepping back from that you know it's interesting we might have been talking about a cardinal in a courtroom uh, this week even if McCarrick hadn't been uh, charged with these crimes because um, this week marks the beginning of the Vatican financial trial and, um, you know, the, the Vatican finance scandal, which we've been covering and talking about on this podcast ad nauseum for quite some time began this week with, with, uh, with, with an arraignment and, uh, and, uh, you know, the trial will itself take, take place in October, but, um, there was a day in court, the first day in court for those who have been indicted, including Cardinal Angelo Becciu, who is the first Cardinal since the 18th century. I want to say 1751 or something like that to, um, to face essentially Vatican charges for financial corruption. Um, and so we might have been talking about sort of a cardinal in a courtroom anyway, and now we're talking about two cardinals in a courtroom. And it, that's an unusual thing, I think, for many people to, wow, two cardinals of the church in, in a courtroom um, and, you know, for in prominent ways and in markedly different ways. Um, and yet both, I think, are indicators in certain ways of... Um, of a, a directional reform, to, you know, towards accountability um, uh, within the life of the church, and not only um, sort of internal mechanisms of accountability, but but external me- mechanisms of accountability, namely in in both cases, sort of the criminal justice system. And you know, I'm just kind of curious at what your thoughts are about that, sort of at a at a step back level about the state of the church. I mean, is it is it embarrassing that there are two? Cardinals on trial at the same, you know, in, in, in a sense on trial at the same time? Or, uh, is it a positive step as I tend to see it that, you know, th- these are indications of moving in the direction of, um, of, a kind of, tr- of a kind of accountability that I think is important? 
Um, is it both? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely a both end. I, I, the kind of reform that requires people to go on trial is necessarily the kind of reform away from a culture of malfeasance, criminality, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so having to bring, you know, it's all, you know, if if you walk it back, if you have a culture that requires this solution, the steps getting there is is going to be very embarrassing, in some cases, humiliating, in some cases, um, extremely distasteful, and, and unpleasant for everyone involved. But it's a necessary step, you know. The med- the medicine is pretty is pretty horrible and, and horrible tasting and strong. But you know, if the patient requires it, that's what it requires. And I, you know, I I was very encouraged when the Vatican announced that there was going to be a trial in the financial scandal. I have been saying for some time that their their international credibility as a as a financial center, which touches directly upon the the viable sovereignty of the Holy See in international law, um, that this hinges on their ability to respond to this scandal in a credible way. We've seen in the last six months a raft of legal changes from Pope Francis to the operative law of both Roman Curia and Vatican City, aimed very much at bringing in the kind of, I, I, there's no other word for it, common sense protections against conflicts of interest, abuse of office, uh, all of the things that, you know, unfortunately have been, uh, you know, synonymous with the financial dealings of the Holy See for far longer than this pontificate, for sure, you know, stretching back well into the middle 20th century. And and frankly, it was probably there before. It's just there wasn't um, there, there wasn't a, a media appetite to cover it. So so moving away from that is is epochal. I think if if we end up in a situation where the reforming measures that Pope Francis has brought in stick, and by stick, I don't just mean that they stay on the books. I mean that they actually lead to institutional change. Over the weekend, uh, last Saturday, we had um, both the prefect of the congregation for the, or sorry, the secretary for the economy, as well as the, the president of APSA uh, sort of release um, some financial reports on sort of, you know, performance of 2020 budget and uh, also apps are released as sort of, you know, performance review of the Holy See's investments and assets. And this is, you know, this is all new ground in terms of transparency, which is fabulous. Um, The reading wasn't all pleasant for anyone who wants to see the Holy See and rude financial health, because of course um, the pandemic has had a devastating effect on many sources of revenue on which the Holy See tends to rely, like Vatican museums, tourism, that sort of thing. Um, but nevertheless, the, the steps towards um, transparency and, and accountability in these things are, are very welcome. And something I wrote about earlier this week is, you know, sort of placing this kind of forward-facing, we're going to be transparent next to the, fi- the, the legal reforms that Pope Francis has brought in. If this sticks doesn't just remain on the books, but permeates the the working culture of the Holy See, then that could end up being perhaps the single greatest operative change to how the Roman Curia works in as long as I can think of, possibly since the Lateran Treaty. I don't know. Um, so it's it, it's a big deal that way. Bishop Nuncio Galatino, who's the president of APSA, was talking about how sort of, you know, well, yeah, there's all this stuff that's supposed to happen at a at this sort of mechanistic level. And he mentioned particularly the, the obligation, um, which happened over Christmas for the Secretary of State to turn over all of its bank accounts and um, investments and assets and all this sort of stuff to APSA for APSA to sort of run book on and, and have oversight of and have this sort of centralized uh, budgetary control. And he said, well, that's all happening. Um, and that's fine, but it's more than that. We need this needs to become a, a cultural change. It's not enough that just we have on paper these things have happened; that it has to be brought to life. And I wholeheartedly agree with Bishop Galatino in this. I I hope it is brought to life. I hope it does happen. You know, as for this trial that we're about to see, it's going to be spectacularly unedifying. I guarantee you, it, it is. You know, no one is going to enjoy watching this unless you harbor in your heart hatred for the church and the holy see it's not going to be pleasant viewing for anyone because you know we saw even the opening day on tuesday was basically um the the lawyers for the 10 accused as well as um, the prosecutors and also lawyers present for for sort of what they what they're calling the civil parties the aggrieved parties and all in in some of this case so like lawyers for the ior the the 
a Vatican bank, not the Vatican bank, um, and things like that, trading sort of procedural um, complaints and, and telling the judges what they thought of the entire idea of the court and you know all this stuff. But the thing, one of the things that came out was that Monsignor Alberto Perlasca, who, if there were sort of three clergy that were in charge of the Secretary of State's financial dealings for years, it was Cardinal Becciu, Monsignor Mauro Carlino, who was also in court on Tuesday with Cardinal Becciu, and Monsignor Perlasca. Um, and it turned out there, everyone had been sort of operating under the assumption that uh, Monsignor Perlasca was basically scooped up by prosecutors and investigators and then flipped under pressure. Um, but it, it appears the reverse is the case, that he basically came knocking on their door and said, let me tell you what I know, and turned whistleblower of his own volition, which is huge. And apparently they, they said in court that um, you know, there was a, there was an objection raised uh, by by some of the lawyers. I think, uh, in fact, um, Cardinal, I think it may have been Cardinal Betchew's lawyers. I'm not 100% sure on that. I need to check. But anyway, lawyers for some of the defendants said, you know, well, Perlaska's uh, interviews with Vatican investigators and prosecutors shouldn't be admissible as evidence because he didn't have a lawyer present while he was being questioned. And that's how this came out. Was they turned around and said, oh, no, we weren't questioning him under caution. He came to us and said, I, and, and they said, don't you worry, we're not going to give you transcripts or whatever. We'll give you the videotape because he talked for hours and we've got it all on tape. And, you know, that's a that's a big deal. Um, it was also interesting because the other thing about, you know, how do you make these things stick? How does this come? Um, how does this, you know, get traction in the daily life of the curious? Of course, as so much does in Rome, this all depends on the will of the Holy Father. How, you know, how keen is the pope to see this through to the end and so far he's shown himself to be pretty steely-eyed about all of this you know he's he's ordered the trial he's authorized the trial there's a cardinal on trial he's made he all signed the, off on arrest warrants and that was yeah. the other thing that came out is he's he's right. inter the, the vatican prosecutor said the holy father had signed off on four different um i'm trying to uh interventions effectively mm -hmm. um amongst them arrest warrants for two laymen um mm -hmm. one of whom was john luigi torzi who was in fact arrested and uh, apparently the pope also signed off on wiretaps, computer wiretaps right. in the Vatican. So, right. I mean, the Pope is not taking a, a sort of hovering at 30,000 feet and just sort of saying, well, we'll just see how it resolves. He seems to be taking this very seriously indeed and giving the prosecutors whatever they need to, to go after financial crime in the Vatican. So yeah. that is an extremely long answer to what was a very short question for you. And so to resum up, Yes, it's very important. Yes, it will be unpleasant and unedifying and embarrassing and in some cases deeply uncomfortable for all of us who love the church to see, but it is very, very important and it is a positive sign. I, I think it is too. I, I think it is too, and I'm glad you sort of elucidated various aspects of it, and especially how difficult it will be. There's another way in which it's difficult, you know, kind of seeing these things, which is just a sort of tra a transition, which perhaps Monsignor Prolaska perhaps exemplifies, I don't know, but from a mentality of the church sort of... Um, being, you know, holy and sort of separate unto herself and capable of, of addressing all these things to herself to, to sort of a recognition of the church's role in a broader sort of set of human communities, right? And, uh, and, and there's an ecclesiological perspective which says, and, and, you know, which is not wrong to say, well, the church, you know, is, is rightly judged by no one, the church is a divine institution, and yet at the same time, the church has long said, at least, in, you know, in... in at least since the Second Vatican Council, the Church has, has said, and perhaps now we see prophetically, no, there are ways in which we submit ourselves to the, you know, ordinary judgment and ordinary expectations of the human community in order to engage fruitfully and credibly in the human community. And, um, and, and I think, you know, I think these things in which we see both sort of the expectation of a sort of secular model of, of, of which is to say a, a jurisdictional model of accountability on, on Vatican finances, and then a jurisdictional model of accountability on a cardinal who... Um, not only was um, behaving with sexual depravity, but who was known to be behaving with sexual depravity. And to clarify, and was, we're not talking about McCarrick again, not Cardinal Betchew. We're talking about we're talking about McCarrick, right? Who was known to be behaving with sexual depravity, and um, and and was sort of that we can see in the McCarrick report. Allegations of this were treated with varying degrees of seriousness, um, but there seems to be um, a recognition of the importance of submitting ourselves, as it were, or uh, taking seriously the sort of demands of justice of the human community for the sake of the in integrity and, and credible witness of the church. And that mentality shift itself is not an easy one. Um, and it's been, I think, a mentality shift of, of anyone who has um, 
grown up in the church in one way or another or been formed in the church and even to see over the past few years um, a shift which says, no, there are things which um, we ourselves have not fully and wholly appreciated, and um, there are ways in which it is not a bad thing for the church to be held account externally in the case of McCarrick um, in precisely the way he is now. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, the if the, when the church exempts itself from the demands of natural justice, that's, that is a kind of witness, and it's a counter witness mm-hmm. to the gospel. And so, you know, the church has always held out that it's not, it's not that the church is above the demands right. of justice. On the contrary, that the church has to exemplify and model these things for the world. And that's part of her prophetic mission. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful in all of this, I guess. Yeah, and then a recognition, too, I think, of um, there's a way of recognizing that without despairing. And, um, you know, a, a recognition, too, as a cardinal faces a trial for financial crimes and a cardinal faces a trial for, for sexual crimes, sort of a recognition that the promises of the Holy Spirit to the church are real and that while the church is, in fact, the communion of the baptized, that does not mean sort of it's constituted by um, the, uh, it's sort of singularly constituted as a sort of assemblage of, of people who, who commit sins, rather that it is sort of that we're mystically taken up into the body of Christ and sort of despite uh, our sinfulness, transformed out of our sinfulness by, by grace and the sacramental life and in the, sacra- in the sacramental economy of the church or by the church, um, but that the church is sort of taken up into this mystical thing so that we transcend, the, the communion of the church transcends the communion of the persons within the church. And we can have a great deal, I think, of faith and trust in, in, in that at a time when we may be discouraged because we see a cardinal on trial for one thing and a, tri- a cardinal on trial for another thing. No, our communion is a communion um, with a mystical communion with God, which transcends our human communion and, um, and, and through which God works you know, despite our sinfulness. Yeah. And, you know, our, our, the salvific mission of the church is premised on the necessity of our salvation. Mm-hmm. So, That's right. You know, it's it's unavoidable that right. we be scandalized on occasion by sin, especially sin within the church. Uh, but you know, this is the I, I always say to people when the church describes herself as a perfect society, perfect meaning complete, not flawless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to be complete, the church has has everything. <laughs> it has those things which need to be reformed, those things which need to be addressed, those things which are hard to look at, those things in the life of the church which we all wish were not there. That's mm-hmm. part of her completeness. And, you know, her her salvific and prophetic mission speaks as much internally to those aspects as it does externally in, in the mission to evangelize. Well, and speaking of which, um, I want to talk about a story that we ran this week that I thought was really interesting. Um, and uh, I, I, I suspect you read it. It was a sort of statistical look at religious identity and religious practice in the United States by our um, pal, Brendan Hodge. And um, and one of the things that, uh, so we ran the story, I think, on um, Wednesday. Yeah. And uh, um, the headline is, The Kids Are Not All Right, a look at U.S. religious belief and practice. And what Brendan does is take down... Um, a breakdown data from something called the General Social Survey, which is um, this long ongoing um, survey uh, of, of Americans that happens, I think it's, it's a very broad survey, and I think it happens every two, year, two years or so. And since 1988, the survey has been asking people about their belief in God. And so we have this sort of big uh, set of information about people's belief in God, which we can see um, sort of uh, dropping over the years. Um, people who say that they know God exists is uh, on the decline. It sort of hovered in the 60s, uh, you know, 60%. It sort of hovered between 61% and 60%, um, you know, until 2006, 2008, but then um, has been sort of on the on a downward decline since 2008. So 2010, 58% of people say they, they know that God exists um, 59% in 2012, but by 2018, all the way down to 54%, which is not a a gigantic drop, but which is fascinating to see a sort of downward um, trend there, Um, you know, and sort of corresponding trends with regard to people who say they have some belief in God, but not all, and or they believe in some higher power. Actually, the the number of people who say they believe in some higher power, but don't know that God exists is is on the rise, which I guess, you know, kind of makes sense. You might jump from the one to the other. Um, but so too is the rise of people who, I, I, by and large, the rise of people who say that they don't um, have a sort of set of religious beliefs at all. And one of the things that Brendan noted is a sort of um, generational shift within those things. That so that um, 
for people who um, who were born in between the 40s and the 70s, an average of 60 percent, you know, say that they they know that God exists. But for people born in the 80s, the number drops to 50 percent. 50 percent of people born in the 80s say that they know God exists, and for people born in the 90s, that number drops to 40 percent and and lower who say that they know God exists. And then there are a lot of people who participate in the survey who were born in the 2000s because uh, it's a survey of adults, but only 32 percent of people who were born in the 2000s and participated in the survey in 2018 said they know God exists. So you see this sort of generational dropping of um, of, of people who say that they know that God exists, relative consistency within sort of age cohorts, but um, lower and lower percentages for each age cohort. One of the things that Brendan points out is that the, that that can be looked at sort of in tandem with, you can't sort of say there's a causation relationship, but that can be looked at in tandem with the um, number of people who say that they, in each generational cohort, who say that they go to church, that um, diminishing church attendance sort of can be correlated to diminishing belief in, in, in God among among generational cohorts. And, uh, and I find that really interesting because it seems to me that one possible way to read that data, you know, is that parents who don't take their kids to church have kids who are less likely to believe in God. And therefore, I mean, you know, it, it's not sort of a one-to-one correlation at all, but therefore it's reasonable to assume that um, there is something about sort of weekly church attendance that has significance in sort of religious formation and identity and, and beliefs. The reason why I bring that up now is because as much in, and as important as the issues of ecclesial reform in McCare, you know, in the McCarrick issue and the Pachu issue that we're talking about are, um, th- there's something to the notion that family life and sort of predictable patterns of religious behavior within family life, which is to say families who pray and worship together, pass on the faith. And, uh, and that in itself, like in, in the midst of seeing two cardinals on trial and these kinds of things, is I think a great encouragement that, that family life is where the rubber meets the road, for better or worse. Um, at least, you know, to, to, to some degree. I think that there is something, first of all, just very interesting there, and second of all, perhaps very encouraging there for, for people who aren't, like, sort of wonder, will these things lead to my kids not practicing the faith or things like this? Yeah, and what I found particularly interesting um, in, in how Brendan broke down these statistics was that while sort of belief in God within a, 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 a generational cohort, a decade of birth years or whatever, um, would also drop off over time so you Mm -hmm. know someone who was born in the 80s for example might say in you know 95 i did believe in god or you know in 2000 i believed Mm -hmm. in god and now i don't and or whatever this this drops off in some cases uh, pretty significantly it doesn't always go from i i know there's a god to i don't believe in god you know there's other boxes that people tend to sort of cascade into from there it looks like you know i i think i do i'm not sure you know i believe in something i all this but that the the line for weekly mass attendance stays constant in Mm -hmm. in the cohort so basically if you're going to mass I mean, we can't, it's, it's not, the data isn't in such a way that you can say, well, the people who went to mass, X, right, yeah. Yeah, but it does appear to track that way that it would say that, you know, if you're going to mass, you don't stop going to mass. That if, right. if that's a lifetime habit formed young, it stays mm-hmm. a lifetime habit. And I find that, you know, it just speaks to the necessity of a, of a sacramental life formed in childhood. It speaks to the necessity of the family as, as the, as the seedbed of faith, as the place where, um, the the faith takes root. That that's where you, you need to get it. It's very hard to acquire it later in life. By all means, you can. You know, mm-hmm. people convert all the time, and thanks be to God for that. Um, but that you know, to to have the faith instilled young is a tremendous gift, and and one that bears fruit. At least it looks like to me, looking at this, that continues through the whole of life. So that's that's very important. I mean, it will be interesting to see, of course. Um, the next time we have this kind of mm-hmm. these kind of statistics to look at, yeah. because of course we've just had a gigantic circuit breaker in the form of the pandemic, where yeah. you know it'll be interesting to see how um, how these lifetime habits of practice have been disrupted uh, by the by church closures, by lockdowns, things like that. Whether they will just you know resume, or if there if there will be a change, I, I don't know. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Well, on that note, Ed, it's the Olympics. And so I've got something for you. Did you, did you were aware? I presume that it's the Olympics. I am. I am aware it's the Olympics. Can I? Uh, can I? Sure. Can I make a confession? And I, I understand that I have a bit of a shtick that people think I'm grumpy and whatever. And I don't really set out to be that way. I love the Winter Olympics. Like I will watch the Winter Olympics. All the, the Summer Olympics never quite grab me the same way. 
Okay. I think it's because there are things in it that I just don't get why they're sports. There's a lot more. (laughs) But so, okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, The Olympics is full winter and summer of sports that are just a little bit like really, really. We're calling that a we're calling that a sport. Like what? Well, I, I don't just mean like skateboarding, which is just absurd. But why? What do you mean? Have you watched any of that? No, I don't want to watch. No, I well, don't. Then you seem to me to be in a weird position here's, to judge whether or not it's the a thing. sport. What I like about what I like about the Olympics, primarily winter and summer, is the person who's best at doing X physical feat. Mm-hmm. Person who can lift the most weight, jump the mm-hmm. highest, jump the furthest, mm-hmm. uh, run the fastest. You know that. Like I get that. When you get into stuff like the triple jump, it's like, I do. Why would I care? You either oh, can jump yeah. the furthest or you can't. I really don't yeah. care mm-hmm. if you do a hop, a skip, and a jump while you're on your way. Like, it, it seems to me like totally just in, concocted. I don't, I don't. And again, fair enough. The Winter I presume Olympics a lot are, of those things have some. I presume a lot of those things have some history. Well, the triple jump. I presume a lot of track and field events have some history in. in Various kinds of sure. martial arts. But like, okay. And also, but like javelin, shot put, hammer throw. How far can you throw mm-hmm. something? Dig right. it. I, I get it. Like, I want to know the answer. Show mm-hmm. me, you know, I'll watch that competition. And mm-hmm. again, the Winter Olympics is full of weird and eccentric sports. I just find them more compelling viewing, I guess. The triple jump doesn't grab me quite like luge, you know? Okay. It, so there's a bit of that. So, yes, I am aware that the Summer Olympics uh, have been going on. No, I have not been getting up early to watch, you know, rhythmic gymnastics or whatever it is. Okay. Well, I'm not going to ask you about rhythmic gymnastics, I don't think. But it is the Olympics, and uh, and so I do have some Olympic trivia for you. Okay. I'm going to fail epically at this, but that's fine. We'll see. We'll see. Ed, are you ready for the Olympics of Olympic trivia? <laughs> I am by no means prepared, but let's do it anyway. Well, that's all right. You know, some people just don't take the Olympics of Olympic trivia seriously, I guess. But we're going to start, Ed, with number question number one for the Pillar podcast, Olympics of Olympic trivia Ed, an Olympic gold medal is mostly made of what metal? Silver, gold, copper, or nickel? I'm going to say probably nickel. You think it's probably nickel? An Olympic gold medal is made mostly of nickel? Yeah. Well, let's see. Oh, Oh, I should have known that that was coming. Oh, gold is not the answer. Copper is not the answer. An Olympic gold medal, Ed, is made mostly of silver. Well, that's Today's counterintuitive. I've 92.5% silver. I figured that it wouldn't be solid gold because that would be an extremely expensive uh, thing to, to dole out for all of the sports. I, If not gold, does it really matter? Like, why go to silver? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Cool. I presume it's gold-plated. Okay, Ed, which of these animals were used in the 1900 Olympic Games? Olympic of Olympics, uh, Pillar Podcast, Olympic of Olympics of Olympic Trivia. Question number two, which of these animals were used in the 1900 Olympic Games? Ed, was it elephants, bears, camels, or pigeons? Uh, I'm going to say pigeons. Ding, 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 ding. Hey. Ed, while competitors typically shot at disc-shaped targets called clay pigeons, in the 1900 games in Paris, shooting competitors shot at real pigeons. I, I was hoping that was the answer. That was what I had in my mind. But I was, I was like, I, I don't imagine, I couldn't think of a purpose for a bear or an elephant. I thought maybe we have equestrian events. Maybe there was some <laughs> kind of camel race. I don't know. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I was hoping that that's, that's what the pigeons were used for. Well, you nailed it. And how old was the oldest Olympic medal winner? And bear in mind that if someone very old won a medal in the past couple of weeks, that my trivia does not include that. But how old was the oldest Olympic medal winner? 72, 48, 64, or 56? I will split the difference and say 64. Ooh. I'm going to give you, the the way my thing is set up, I don't actually know the answer until we get to the right answer. So I'm just going to let you keep guessing until you get to the right answer. And how old was the oldest Olympic medal winner? 72, 48, or 56? 56. Ooh. Really? Okay. So it must go be Go high or go low? Go, go low. Ooh, 72? Ed, 72. During the 1920 Summer Olympics, Swedish shooter Oscar Swan won a silver medal in the double shot running deer contest. He was 72 years old. Do you know about double shot running deer? No. So basically, this was a cool sport that they've eliminated, or an interesting sport, at least. I think it's pretty cool. So from a distance of 100 meters, um, a, a, it, it's kind of like, um, do you ever play Big Buck Hunter? Yes. <laughs> Okay, so this was Olympic big buck hunter because basically from uh, from a distance of 100 meters, a paper target that looked like a deer was glided, I guess, you know, moved across an area, a shooting area. And um, uh, 
contestants would shoot at the target. Um, I think they, I don't know if they, I've never figured out if they each got a target or if there was one target. But anyway, they would shoot at the target. Double shot obviously means that they were able to shoot it twice. And single shot means, now I presume they were only one was shooting at a time. You didn't get points if you shot in the flank. You've got, you know, there were bullseyes on the deer worth different point values. Double shot, you could shoot it twice. Single shot, you could shoot it once. And uh, in the 1920 Summer Olympics, Oscar Swan, 72 years old, won the silver medal. That's really cool. That's a sport I would watch. I, you'd like to watch seventy-two-year-old. I would watch any running deer. I would. I would watch the current crop of leaders in their field capable of doing this Fair. at an Olympic level. I would like to watch that. I would prefer now, that to skateboarding. Now, Ed, since you love them, where were the first? What? What? Do you know what number question this is? Four. Probably four. I don't know how you're doing. Let's say that you've gotten two right and one wrong because I don't know. Um, Ed, where were the first Winter Olympics held? I know you're a Winter Olympics man, an aficionado, if you will. Uh, United States, Greece, France, or Switzerland? I'm going to say Switzerland. Ooh. Really? Yeah. You want to try again? France. Chamonix. Chamonix, Chamonix, France. I, you know what? I, that was my first mental guess. Was I thought, was it Chamonix? I thought, nah, they do it first in Zermatt or somewhere <laughs> like that. But I should have known because Zermatt is inaccessible by road. Why was that? Why? Why? Um, okay. Why did I think it would be Switzerland? Because they're neutral. Yeah. No, I understand that. Why did you think it would be Zurzan? Was that the name of the place where you thought Zermatt. it would be Zermatt? Zermatt? Why did you think it would be Zermatt? You know, the Matterhorn. It's quite picturesque. Okay. Well, how, why did you think it might be Chamonix? What's in Chamonix? I know nothing of these. Things. Chamonix is um, it, it's a it, it's a it's a village valley uh, in the Alps, uh, in the shadow of Mont Blanc, which is the tallest mountain in Europe. It's if you if you hike up a certain part of it, it's where the borders of Switzerland, Italy, and France meet. Um, it's you can drive through a tunnel and you can be in Italy. It's it, it's right there on the border. It's it's a big ski place. Um, They've had the Winter Olympics there, I think, more than once, um, which is why it was on my radar to think about. I just didn't think they did it there for the first time, but, you know, I guess they did. Fair enough. Good fondue there, you know. Ed, at the 1900 Paris Olympics, women weren't allowed to compete. Here are some things that may have happened at the 1900 Paris Olympics. I'm going to tell you them, and you're going to tell me which is true. Ed, at the 1900 Paris Olympics, women weren't allowed to compete. There were more athletes than spectators. Men fought bears, or everyone competed topless. Which of those do you think is true, Ed, at the 1900 Paris Olympics? There were more athletes than spectators. Very, very, very good. You keep very trying good. to get me. You keep trying to tempt me with these bears. I you know, it's, I was hoping that you had realized you could eliminate bears because you already learned that the only animals at the 1900 Paris Olympics were. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. You know, I, I. I gave the bears a long, lingering look the first time you asked. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not falling into your bear trap. Well, JD. at the 1900, oh, at the 1900 Paris Olympics, which kind of I think took place kind of concurrently with the Paris World's Fair, if I remember, there were no opening or closing ceremonies. There were more athletes and spectators. The um, croquet event uh, kind of was a big hit um, in that there was a single paying spectator who attended the tournament. I think that spectator deserved a medal. I, I hope he got one. I hope he got one. Did you know, Ed, by the way, that um, in the um, early Olympics, and I don't know when it ended, that alongside athletic competitions were art competitions? No. It was very important in the minds of the early Olympiad um, folks. Um, uh, it, w- it was very important in their minds um, that um, there be an artistic component because they felt they felt that expressed sort of the ethos, I suppose, uh, the zeitgeist of the ancient Olympics. And so there were artistic competitions. They were eventually done away with because um, unlike sports, um, various artistic disciplines don't have sort of regulatory bodies who can organize the tournaments. And so mm. for the Olympic Committee itself, it became a whole to-do. But um, I mean, but they that was, had, was, was, this, was this freeform artistic stuff or was it, you know, sort of Grecian themed, like pottery making and um, that sort yeah, of Yeah, sculpture you know, bronzing, painting, I don't know. I don't know what the things were, but, you know, it was those kinds of things, and then they were judged by panels of judges. I feel like there, there must be an academy in France and probably another yeah. one in Italy that can judge sculpture. I, I feel well, like they must have such a body. This is one of the reasons why people keep talking about the notion of introducing chess to the Olympics is because 
What chess has in common with the sports that are in the Olympics is that it has an international regulatory body. So, you know, the Olympics is not sort of one tournament organized by the International Olympic Committee. It's a bunch of tournaments organized by the, reg, you know, the, the regulatory authorities of various, of various sports that all take place at the same time. And because chess has a sort of international governing authority, it, it's equipped to be uh, an Olympic event in a way that painting or sculpture making is not. And in the way even that certain things which might seem to be more athletic are not if they don't have a sort of international regulatory authority. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'd watch chess or not. I'd like to I'd like to think I'm open-minded about that. I watched, I don't know about you, but I watched that um, thing on Netflix with the chess player. I didn't see that. You know, Is there a documentary oh, about chess players on Netflix? No, there was a series. Oh. Uh, you know, the, the lady plays chess. The lady plays chess. And, uh, oh, I think I remember Queen's when Gambit. this was a thing. I, yeah, I yeah, Queen's Gambit. Not, oh, you should. It was, it was good. Okay, okay. Uh, Ed, um, coming back here. Which member? You're, this is uh, this is an appropriate question for you, and um, I know that you probably learned this in school, and uh, maybe you even have sort of an engraving on it a, of it on your wall at home. I don't know, but which member of the British royal family won an Olympic medal? Ed, was it Elizabeth II, Alfred the Great? Kate Middleton or Zara Tyndall? Uh, I actually didn't need multiple guests for this. It's Zara Phillips. Uh, sorry, Nate Phillips. Now, sorry, Tyndall. Um, she is an accomplished equestrian. Uh, she she took her married name Tyndall because she may she married the England rugby captain Mike Tyndall, national now, hero. I don't mean to sound like someone who doesn't know anything or care about the royal family, but I, I don't even know who that is. She's the queen's granddaughter. Oh, she's the queen's granddaughter. Yes. Who, who, who are her parents? Uh, her mother is Princess Anne, I believe. Oh, her mother is Princess Anne. Yeah. Is Zara in... You've seen it, the documentary that I like about the royal family, the Queen. Is, is Zara in the Queen? No, I, I don't believe they've got down to that generation. Well, it's no wonder that I don't know about her then. Okay, so she's a contemporary then of the dude who lives in California and the dude who will be king. Yes, she's their cousin. Um, right. And she's she is, a by all accounts, a level-headed, um, nice person. Oh, okay. Well, there you have it. And also an accomplished okay. Olympian. Well, it seems that way. In the sport of horsing, huh? Horse, horse, horsing. Yes. She's an equestrian. Okay. I believe she does, you know, show jumping, dressage, that sort of thing. Well, very interesting. Okay, Ed, your final question. Hmm, I want to make it a good one. I know how you love this. I think that you will do very well. What, what country, Ed, nearly swept the men's swimming events at the 1932 Summer Olympics? I know you say you don't like Summer Olympics, but I also know how much you love competitive swimming. I know. I, know, I mean, a lot of people don't know that about you, but I, I know it. And um, <laughs> um, I'm so... Uh, well, Mrs. Condon told me about... I mean, she said that you don't really make a thing of it, but I know, I know how much you love competitive swimming. So I know that this is a question that you will do just fine with. Ed, uh, which country nearly swept the men's swimming events at the 1932 summer olympics was it the united states or sweden or italia or japan i'm gonna say italy italy you say Oof. sweden Oof. well well now you got a 50 50 shot i'm i'm gonna say japan Japan won five of six gold medals in the men's swimming events at the 1932 Summer Olympics. The most interesting thing to me about that is now I feel like there are like 50 gold medals that can be won at men, in men's swimming and 50 in, in women's swimming. There's so many but, I mean, events, this is but, but this is part of what I meant about there being a profusion of sports in the Olympics. Oh, so what which you is, don't like is sort of um, Olympic bloat. Yes. I see. You yes, like a profusion of sports. That like, you know, the, as you said, I don't know how many medals are on the table for for swimming, for example, but... You know, it's like diving. Cool, I will watch it. But it in synchronized diving. Okay, fine. Yeah, cool. I see the. I see that. That's um, that's a thing. That's a real thing that people can do at a high level and is impressive. But you know, in in swimming, there's different strokes and different distances. And it's the same thing with running. It's like I, there's the 100, there's the 200, there's the 400, there's the 800. It's like you know, I I get it. You'd like to you'd like to generalize things a little bit. Give me more. the marathon. Give me the hundred meters. You know, or give mm. me whichever one produces the person with the fastest top speed. That's what I'm interested. I wonder in. if that's because the countries that pay into the International Olympic Committee were um, complaining. You know, like there the, sometimes these competitions that are sort of essentially like run by by sort of trade organizations, and they're essentially sort of pay for play, where you know everybody gets recognized. It, everybody pays into the trade association and then everybody sort of gets recognized. And I wonder if the people who pay into the International Olympic Committee were grousing that 
they weren't, um, you know, having enough opportunities to win medals. But what I think is far more likely is just that the more events you have, the more uh, the more opportunity you have for television and the more opportunity you have for other sponsorship. Right. Presumably so, beating the Russians at yeah. the medal count or something. You know. Right. Exactly. But but I think I think it's probably I think a rising tide of medal count floats all. Um, uh, floats all broadcasters in all countries, and probably that that's that's, that's probably true. And I mean, I want to be clear. I, I I dig the Olympics generally. You know, like I can watch. Like perfect example. I can watch gymnastics and go, wow. I can immediately tell that my arms would drop from their sockets if I attempted most of that. You know, incredible stuff. But then, then I like watch like rhythmic gymnastics, and I like, why is there why is there a ribbon with a stick i don't how is this a sport i don't get I it i used to know why something about this? the history of rhythmic gymnastics yeah, but you I don't know, know why, why rhythmic gymnastics is a fake sport jd let me tell you because every member of the rhythmic gymnastics team every member of every rhythmic gymnastics teams would cut off a finger for a spot on the actual gymnastics team i don't know i i don't even know nobody if they dreams of being the same way nobody or... dreams of being the one with the with the stick and the ribbon they want to be the one you know <laughs> doing know. the rings and the and the vaulting and all the cool stuff i mean i presume i do presume that that is true i used to know something though about the history of rhythmic gymnastics and i kind of i feel like i've forgotten everything when I. when was the I last time the united it? states won a gold medal in rhythmic gymnastics judy i presume we win all of them don't you no i, mean, I, I have no else? idea but that's my point is i have no idea i know greater. i know how the u.s olympic gymnastics team i can tell you how the ladies olympic gymnastics team is doing because it's we are we are nationally very okay, concerned with it because it's rhythmic gymnastics deal. has been dominated by eastern european countries especially the soviet union or the post-soviet republics of today and bulgaria mm-hmm Bulgaria and the USSR were in rivalry with each other before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So this was so, an Eastern Bloc um, ad. Mm-hmm. This was maybe it was an Eastern Bloc ad because they weren't winning the regular mm. thing. I don't know, but it turns out Spain is pretty good at rhythmic gymnastics. Uh, Italy's pretty good at rhythmic gymnastics. Israel is pretty good at rhythmic gymnastics. We do not seem to be uh, a powerhouse. There is I don't know if you knew this. There is men's rhythmic gymnastics. Yeah, you know oh, yeah I was aware. I mean, I think they have different. Do they have different? I don't think they. I think they have different props and stuff. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, because now I see someone with a hula hoop. I'm kind of just scrolling through here. I see somebody, yeah, doing things with a hula hoop. We went. Um, we went on Sunday um, to a circus, not like a big circus, but a sort of fam- family-owned circus. It actually, it was kind of interesting. It had six performers, but they did very many different things and no animals, and it was super interesting. But there was a person who was doing hoop stuff by which i mean like hanging high it was in an actual tent and they were hanging high above us and um you know kind of hanging on the hoop in different ways and things like that and it was pretty cool Mm -hmm. you know sort of falling off it and grabbing it again and these kinds of things rhythmic gymnastics at 60 feet i'd watch that yeah i suspect that that rhythmic gymnastics uh at the olympics isn't i only think of it as having the ribbon no it's and there's a ball um, See, you know more. You know a lot. You love rhythmic gymnastics a lot more than I, I do. Just, I like to. I like to think I have informed criticism. Well, everybody, you have spent uh, a good hour with us, the informed Olympic critics of the Pillar Podcast, uh, and uh, and thank you for doing so. Higher, stronger. What is it? Higher, faster, stronger? Uh, are we talking about PF flyers now, or the, does is this the Olympic? No, isn't that the Olympic model? I have no idea. Model. Okay. Well, I, I was go for gold. I thought that was the Olympic model. No, I'm pretty sure it's higher, faster, stronger. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's higher, faster, stronger. So anyhow, that will be our model for today. Um, and uh, thank you for being here with us. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed NGD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. Ed, take us out with the Olympic theme, hummed by you, if you would. I have no idea what the oh, Olympic theme is. Oh, come on. No, I... No, that's not that's Star Trek. Yep. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do, 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 do. Nope. Born free. Well, we're going to take you out with the Olympic theme right now. Mm-hmm.